You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. We're all we got, we're all we know, we're all we need. Following Wednesday's mass shooting in San Jose, an outpouring of grief from a stunned community. But these aren't names to us. These are people we know and we love and we've seen every single day. And as the dead are mourned, the incident is also inspiring renewed calls for gun reform. We need to recommit to action to end the epidemic of gun violence in our country. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Menconi, and today on the program, we're going to consider what reform could follow this most recent mass shooting incident. The key for gun safety reform advocates is to think about this in the long term. And then we'll also hear why experts are warning this problem is likely going to get worse before it gets better. I think we're going to see an increase in fire and violence, not just here in California, but nationwide. All that and more coming up. First, a moment to reflect on Wednesday's tragic toll. Just a day after the Wednesday morning shooting that took place at a Valley Transportation Authority rail yard, hundreds gathered for a vigil in front of San Jose City Hall to remember the victims. Thank you all for being here in this moment. San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo. We're here because members of our community, our colleagues, our family members, our friends, our loved ones are suffering. That pain he was referring to, strikingly clear in the voices of the victim's family members, some of whom took to the stage to offer up heartfelt remembrances for those who were lost. Paul was a wonderful husband and father who was full of love. All of you who know him knows he's full of jokes. That was the type of the person he was. No matter when I called, who I called for, he never asked questions. He's asked, hey, what's the problem? I'm going to help him. And great. My dad was the smartest and funniest man I know. He was always the life of the party. And all of my friends loved being around him. Super and I'll, I'll never not miss him. So, thank you. tremendously difficult to represent this community and to also be feeling the pain. That voice is San Jose City Council member Raul Perales, who was among those mourning a loss. When I found out about the news of the active shooter at 7 a.m. yesterday, I immediately thought about my friend. I sent him a text message that has not been returned and will never be returned. That's because, he would come to learn, his friend, Michael Rudimetkin, was among those killed in the shooting. Rudimetkin, a technician for VTA, is remembered by family members for his generosity and warmth. Perales had known him since middle school. 
During his remarks paying tribute to his friend, Perales also called for action. We need to offer the help and assistance and embrace our struggling peers, co-workers, family members, loved ones. We need to open that up, ladies and gentlemen, and bring them in to help before this happens again. During a moment of downtime, I had a chance to pull Perales aside to speak with him about the loss and the response that he's hoping to see. There's the personal side of this, there's the individual lives lost, as, as you're remembering your friend right there. But there's also the, the collective fact that these were essential workers, and it's been noted on several times that these are the very people who have kept our communities running for this last very difficult year and a half. And so there's, there's an extra layer of tragedy here and a loss for the community as a whole. I'm wondering if you can reflect on that loss as well. Absolutely. Um, these are people that, uh, you know, didn't get to go and work from home, right? They, they've been out. These are like, like my friend Mike was an overhead uh, lines person, making sure that the light rail trains, right, had the power they needed on their lines to keep running and servicing the trains and ensuring we can keep, as we know it, uh, a, a viable asset of the community, public transportation moving. And, um, and they've been doing that through a very, very difficult year. And you have this dual perspective, both as somebody who's, who's lost a friend, uh, but also as somebody who is an elected official and is going to be leading the response in your own way to this event. What are you hoping to see come out of San Jose? Uh, we already have seen uh, people stepping up, raising funds, trying to support family members. What else are you hoping to see? What are you going to help make happen? Yeah, I think number one, we really should be focused on the victims and their families uh, and the survivors because these are individuals that we're going to be expecting to come back and be public servants, right? They've been working through the pandemic. They're uh, running our buses, our light rails, keeping uh, our public transportation system moving. And we're going to expect a now, uh, uh, understand it was a good number of them, right, that were in there as witnesses that we're going to be uh, asking to come back to work at some point here. And their mental health is, is really going to be important that we're focused on providing them support as well as the victims and their families. Um, and, and then beyond that, obviously, I think there's certainly a lot more conversation to be had for individuals like myself that are in elected roles to talk about safety, to talk about gun control, to be able to have these real difficult conversations after instances like this uh, that unfortunately are all far too common. Well, I'm sorry for your loss and uh, thank you for being generous thank with you. your time. Thank San Jose City Council Member Raul Perales. This is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Menconi. Up next on the program, well, Perales is, of course, not the only elected leader who's been talking about gun reform in the wake of the shooting. The incident also prompted renewed calls for gun control from the White House, as well as from Governor Newsom, who spoke passionately about the issue in the hours following the shooting. but it begs the damn question, what the hell is going on in the United States of America? the hell is wrong with us? And when are we going to come to grips with this? When are we going to put down our arms, literally and figuratively, our politics, stale rhetoric, finger pointing? But in this time of divided government, what can the advocates for gun control really hope to achieve? I put that question to Adam Winkler, a constitutional law professor with the UCLA School of Law, who is also an expert on legal issues related to firearms. Here's that conversation. Professor Winkler, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. 
Thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, let's start by considering what measures are up for consideration on the federal level. Uh, President Biden came into office on a campaign pledge to reinstate a national assault weapons ban. But so far, he has yet to follow through on that. Uh, What he has done is issue a number of gun control orders. Uh, Legislation, though, is obviously going to be quite a bit more difficult. So what options are open to the Biden administration in the gun control arena at the moment? Well, there's no doubt that uh, President Biden does have a bold agenda of gun reform, uh, but most of his proposals do require new legislation. If you want to make meaningful change in America's uh, gun environment, then you need legislation. And uh, unfortunately, the prospects for legislation coming out of Congress are very, very slim. While it is possible that things like bans on military-style rifles or high-capacity magazine restrictions or universal background checks potentially could make it through the House, there's no way they're going to overcome a filibuster in the Senate. And even if the Democrats got rid of the filibuster, they would might have a difficult time securing 50 votes, even among the Democratic caucus in the Senate, for significant gun reform. In terms of the measures that he has taken and might still take, uh, it seems like some of the most talked about measures are measures to curtail the sale of so-called ghost guns. Those are uh, firearms that are made from uh, parts that are difficult to trace, sort of assembled at uh, at the point of use. What do you see as being the most meaningful measures the uh, president has available to him at this point? When we talk about executive action or executive orders, we're talking about the president's authority uh, as the one who's in charge of enforcing the laws that are passed by Congress to interpret those laws uh, in a way to make them effective. And so that means the president's wiggle room when it comes to executive action or executive orders is limited. It's limited to what ambiguities uh, exist in the current legislation passed by Congress. And the truth is the NRA has been very, very careful in writing America's gun laws, so there's not a lot of ambiguity. There's small things that President Biden can do to beef up federal enforcement of gun laws, uh, to reinstate some minor rules about, say, uh, Social Security Administration findings of incompetency. Uh, uh, The Obama era said that would make one unauthorized to own a gun. But again, this is a small number of people who would really be affected. For President Biden to really make a change on the gun safety reform uh, area space, we need legislation, and it's going to be very difficult for him to come by. All right. Well, let's uh, step back from the federal debate and look to the gun control measures that are proposed here in California. Governor Newsom's call for greater gun control measures on Wednesday was met uh, somewhat derisively, actually, and uh, from within his own party, no less. Assemblyman Mark Levin of San Rafael responded to the Wednesday comments by calling on the governor to support a measure to tax guns and ammunition purchases uh, and use the the funding to support gun violence prevention programs. Um, Do you see that proposal going anywhere? Well, it is possible. We do know that there is very strong support, especially uh, among at the California Assembly uh, for gun control measures. And over the last 10 years, we've seen a number of different measures passed by the California State State Legislature, uh, some of which were vetoed by Governor Brown um, and might come up again before uh, Governor Newsom. With regards to the particular proposal to tax ammunition and firearm sales, uh, well, there's a potential constitutional problem with that. Generally, the government doesn't have the authority to tax the ordinary exercise of a fundamental constitutional right. The government couldn't 
tax, put a special tax, for instance, uh, on you publishing a blog post or uh, on the ink that you use to uh, print a newspaper. Um, they can charge ordinary taxes that apply to other sales of items, um, but not special taxes on those issues. So I imagine if that law does get adopted, and it is possible that it could get through the, the House and be signed by Governor Newsom, we're certain to see a legal challenge to it and one that might have pretty good chances uh, of overturning the law. All right. So some limits on the state front as well. Uh, real quick, want to remind listeners that we are speaking to Adam Winkler, UCLA School of Law, constitutional law professor, also the author of Gunfight, uh, The Battle for the Rights to Bear Arms in America. So let's talk about the facts of this particular incident uh, to get a better handle on how it might play into the broader debate. Um, Law enforcement officials have said that the three semi-automatic handguns that the shooter used were actually legally obtained. He was also using, though, high-capacity magazines, which are illegal under California law, which uh, sets a limit on the number of bullets that can be allowed. Uh, These magazines apparently carrying 12 and 15 bullets um, uh, over the limit of uh, just 10. That is permissible. So, uh, interestingly... That magazine ban itself, California's magazine ban, has been the subject of legal dispute. It's uh, currently facing a legal challenge that's working its way through the courts. So a very relevant issue that's raised right there. Yeah, that's right. California, just a few years ago, uh, uh, passed a Proposition 63, a ballot measure that banned the possession of gun magazines that were capable of holding 11 or more rounds uh, of ammunition. Um, uh, The issue with this law is that it just hasn't been enforced very well. Uh, We know that there are millions of these high capacity magazines uh, in civilian hands in California, and there's no evidence that people have been turning in these gun magazines or or selling them to people in other states uh, or throwing them away. And so we know that while the law does ban the possession of these gun magazines, there are a lot of people in California who do possess these gun magazines. So it's not a real shock to see it, uh, see these magazines turn up at a, a mass shooting. Um, it's one of the problems with some of the gun control measures we're seeing proposed. Uh, we could pass a law that bans the possession of these gun magazines, but as long as people have them in their homes where they're not being searched, uh, those gun magazines may be retained in the same way, same way that people might do illegal drugs without the government knowing about it. And that speaks to one of the broader points that critics of gun control have been making since the Wednesday shooting, uh, essentially making the argument that California already has some of the nation's strictest gun laws, uh, including a requirement for universal background checks, including a uh, 10-day waiting period, and also including a ban on military-style assault weapons. So uh, the argument goes that if those laws were not enough to stop this shooting, how effective would more control measures uh, really be? Uh, So uh, the facts of this particular case uh, really do seem to uh, complicate some of the debate that perhaps the uh, advocates for gun reform uh, would like to have. Well, there's no doubt that gun advocates uh, are right, that uh, it's very difficult for California to adopt a gun control law that has uh, a really meaningful impact on the ground, given all the laws that California already has, and importantly, the lack of similar regulation in other states that border California. It's very easy for people to go to Arizona or to Nevada and purchase the kinds of military style firearms, for instance, that California won't let you buy. 
And uh, while you're not supposed to bring that gun back across the border, again, it's very easy to do. Guns can tr be transported across state lines secretly and covertly uh, without any effort uh, at all, to be honest with you. So um, uh, it is one of the problems. If you want to have meaningful gun reform, it really needs to be at the federal level to have the biggest impact because it'll affect all states and limit that sort of loophole that comes with neighboring states having much looser laws. And so all these complications speak to really something that you've written about before, that is the fact that uh, really so many times in the past we have seen these uh, mass casualty incidents, and uh, so many times they have not really moved the needle forward on uh, gun reform. And uh, I, I suppose that all, all these challenges that you're bringing up uh, are, are to some degree explain why that is. Well, look, the truth is, is we have a lot of guns in America, about 400 million of them in, civilians ha in civilian hands. And as long as that's the case, um, it's very difficult for any new law to have a profound impact on the ground because people already have guns and they're widely distributed and easy to get. Uh, I think the, the key for gun safety reform advocates is to think about this in the long term. What steps can we take to bring down the number of incidents of gun violence every year. The truth is we're always gonna have mass shootings in the same way that we always have murders uh, and we always have sexual assault and we always have burglary. We're always going to have people committing suicide in the same way. What we can do is have good and effective laws that make that less likely to occur and bring down the daily death toll from gun violence. Hmm. And so you are talking about really an uphill battle that uh, advocates for reform are going to be facing. And uh, we just mentioned some of the court challenges that uh, they could also that uh, past reform measures uh, are facing as well in the courts. Uh, could that represent a setback for uh, gun control advocates going forward? That's right. Not only are gun control advocates going to have real difficulty getting significant new reforms adopted through Congress, it's very likely that the Supreme Court in the coming years is going to strike down a number of gun control measures. In California, we could see some of the most significant reforms of recent years uh, struck down by the courts, including uh, restrictions on concealed carry that uh, counties like Los, like Los Angeles County and uh, many other counties in California have that effectively ban people from carrying weapons might see uh, the courts strike down uh, restrictions on military style rifles might see courts strike down bans on high capacity magazines. Uh, and so uh, I think the prospects for uh, gun safety reform uh, going forward are not only dim, uh, but uh, but treacherous. All right. So no doubt much more debate to follow, but uh, hopefully this conversation gives a little bit more of a sense of where that debate could lead. Um, we have once again been speaking to Adam Winkler, UCLA School of Law, constitutional law professor, also the author of Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. Professor Winkler, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, we're reflecting on the tragic toll from this past Wednesday's mass shooting at a San Jose rail yard. As we just heard, the incident is spurring renewed calls for strengthened gun control measures. Up next, though, we're going to take a closer look at the problem of gun violence itself and why some experts are warning that we're likely to see a rise in mass casualty shootings as the pandemic winds down. For that conversation, we're going to welcome on now Garen Wintemute. He's an expert on gun violence and the director of the Violence Prevention Research Program at UC Davis. Garen Wintemute, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thanks for having me. 
So before we consider what might be coming next, let's take a look back at how gun violence trends have been shifting over the past year or so. And uh, here we find something of a complicated picture, because on the one hand, uh, as listeners probably have noticed, we've seen a substantial drop in public mass shootings. Um, It's been a bit of a reprieve, honestly. But uh, overall, the picture is really not quite uh, so positive at all. Violent crimes more generally are up, and it uh, turns out shootings seem to have risen as well, uh, just not the kind that make it on the evening news. So uh, untangle these trends for us, if you could. Sure. That's entirely correct. Um, We had a a lull in public mass shootings, um, perhaps primarily due to the shutdown order. There weren't so many people out in public. But more broadly, um, firearm violence did not decline. It, It rose substantially. In fact, firearm homicide rose by 25% 25% nationwide in 2020. That's an almost unprecedented year-over-year increase. And preliminary data are that it's risen another 25% in 2021 over 2020 in a number of cities that make their data available rapidly. We need to keep this in mind. Public mass shootings, the ones that have place names, and we've just added San Jose to that list, um, account for only 1% to 2% of all deaths from firearm violence. They don't even account for most mass shootings. Most mass shootings are not these named public events. They occur in private, a plurality involve intimate partner violence. Yeah, so it is, uh, despite what gets the uh, most of the media attention, uh, there is this much uh, larger and oftentimes uh, different set of issues that are driving the vast majority of uh, the deadly shootings that occur. That's entirely correct. And so what would you hope that we consider after a mass shooting like this in terms of the driving forces? I mean, I I suppose just, uh, again, keeping it focused on uh, the the, the driving forces that we've seen over the last year, what do we know about what has been driving the surge in gun violence? I mean, uh, Oakland in particular has been struggling with uh, gun violence over the past year. It's been uh, suggested that uh, many of the support programs that had been in place to prevent uh, gun violence, you know, supporting uh, young people that uh, might be at risk of violence. Uh, some of those programs have not been as accessible. Uh, there's a number of other theories out there. What what seems most convincing to you? Well, I, I certainly think that's part of it, uh, what you just described. The good news on that front, I think, is that first off, we're emerging from the pandemic and people will be able to get together for such programs. But also the Biden administration has, is committing to an effort to make five billion with a B dollars available for such programs nationwide. And there's a separate but overlapping, or I should say complementary effort here in California. And I think we'll see much more of that. But let me take a step back. One of the things that we saw a year ago, the first part of 2020, was a surge in firearm purchasing nationwide and in California, as people saw a pandemic on the horizon and then as the pandemic hit. And related to that surge in purchasing nationwide and in California, um, we saw an increase in firearm violence through the first half of the year. And the size of the increase in purchasing was related to the size of the increase in violence. Um, But then, as you said, it got very complicated. Um, We hit May, George Floyd was murdered. There were other instances of police violence. There was reaction to those incidents and reaction to them. We had a pretty violent summer. And then in the fall, 
we had the beginnings of an absolutely unprecedented surge in firearm purchasing that began in September, October. Um, we had a surge in the pandemic, people are afraid. We had an election year coming, typically drives up purchasing rates. Um, and this was not any election. Gee, maybe the gun control guy is gonna get elected. And then the gun control guy did get elected and the other guy protested, culminating in an assault on the Capitol. And that surge in purchasing driven by social unrest and fear of more to come um, lasted right through to, until January. And we're on the way back up again. The, the, the days and weeks with the highest number of background checks conducted for firearm purchases in the country were just last we're just in March. So there's I think a lot of concern on the part of people who studied this issue that we are headed for a really rough summer. And just to put a fine point on it, more accessibility to firearms is associated with more gun violence? There is an entire body of research, whether looking at the individual level or the population level, that easier access to firearms is associated with an increase in firearm violence. All right. Well, uh, circling back to the facts of this most recent uh, case in San Jose, uh, curious for your take, because for many, uh, the incident raises some questions about California's red flag law. Uh, Listeners may know that that's a law that allows concerned citizens to petition a judge to temporarily confiscate a gun owner's weapon uh, in certain situations. Uh, And as we learn more about the shooter behind Wednesday's rampage, it's becoming increasingly clear that he put up quite a few red flags. Over the years, uh, we've heard about troubling accounts from his ex-wife. Uh, we know he faced serious accusations from an ex-girlfriend, and uh, he even had a run-in with federal authorities who found him in possession of a notebook indicating his hatred for the VTA. So, uh, a-, a lot to be concerned about there. But for all that, it seems that no one ever tried to file a red flag warning against him. What does this say about the efficacy of California's red flag law? Uh, not much. Uh, and let me amplify. Hmm. Um, first off, yeah. as an aside. We try and avoid the term red flag law. It's nonspecific, it's stigmatizing um, to people with mental illness and to firearm owners. People who work in the field talk about gun violence restraining orders or extreme risk protection orders. But in this case, you actually put your finger on it. Um, the, the things that have, have shown up in the media that are concerning about this man happened years ago um, before California had a gun violence restraining Mm. order. So it simply wasn't an option. But let me just for a moment set that aside. Um, The gun violence restraining order in California and the 18 or 19 states that have replicated our statute, California's law was enacted following a mass shooting um, in which as happens 80% of the time, the shooter gave some declaration of intent to do something awful. Um, In the particular case of San Jose, a GVRO was not an option for reasons we've just discussed. Standing for gun violence restraining order, yes. But more generally, we are trying very, very hard to get people in California and around the country to be aware that this exists. To go back to the old adage, it's if you see something, if you hear something, say something. Because these days, there is a mechanism that allows a very focused action on an individual person at risk in time to avoid a crisis. And I want to emphasize, for a member of the general public, using the GVRO law does not mean you've got to go to court and do a bunch of paperwork. All you have to do is call the cops. They'll take it from there. Yeah. 
All right. Well, taking a step back from all this and just trying to consider what solutions might be available if we are looking at a more difficult summer and we are looking at just a trend towards more gun violence generally, what are the steps that you think we should all be thinking about, all all be taking right now and, and supporting to take the edge off and hopefully start to move things in the right direction? So here in California, uh, because the story is very different in other parts of the country, um, we already have a robust regulatory regime. We've closed lots of the loopholes that the rest of the country is still talking about. And, and before I answer your question directly, we need to give ourselves a pat on the back about this. We have below average rates of firearm homicide in California, and we have almost the lowest firearm suicide rate in the entire country. Um, and it's all both homicide and, and suicide are violent acts. Having said that, we've already talked about GVROs. Um, another uh, avenue I think we should follow just as quickly as we possibly can is community level violence prevention programs. As we talked about earlier, they've been a little bit on hold because we've all been stuck at home for the last year, but we are emerging and those programs can come back online. The state is making money available. Uh, there will be some passage of time. The federal government is making some money available. There are reasonably well-tested programs for which there's good evidence of effectiveness. and. If, if I had a wish list, at the top of it would be every community that wants to implement those programs ought to have the resources to do it. And, and so I suppose in closing, um, you are painting a somewhat alarming picture about what may be ahead in, uh, for California uh, in this uh, summer. Uh, but you're also suggesting that we have many of the tools that we need to help uh, reduce the worst outcomes. Uh, how hopeful are you that we will be able to avoid some of the, 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 the bleakest outcomes that you outline there? Well, thanks for the wiggle room with some. Uh, I am very hopeful that we will be able to avoid some. All, no, but let me point this out on a hopeful note. Um, we've been talking a, a, a grim tale here. Um, 30 years ago, rates of firearm violence were far, far higher than they are today. And we got through that. We, we lowered them down and they stayed lower, not acceptably low, but lower for 20 years. Right now, we're dealing with a resurgence. Fine, we've been here before, let's take care of it. All right. From his mouth to your ears, uh, call to action right there. We have been speaking to Garen Wintemute, an expert on gun violence and also the director of the Violence Prevention Research Program at UC Davis. Garen Wintemute, thanks so much for being on KCBS In Depth. Thanks again for having me. This has been KCBS In Depth. Thanks for listening. For KCBS and In Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe. Be well. We'll see you next week. been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.